I'm Dia Mirza and this is No Denying It, a UN Climate Action podcast. In 2013, an eight-story building in Dhaka, Bangladesh collapsed. The building started trembling. There was lots of noise and I started running forward. After five or six steps, I couldn't see anything. We thought we were going to die and we were saying goodbye to each other. It was called Rana Plaza and it housed five garment factories. Their employees produced clothing for some of the world's most prominent fashion brands. It wasn't the first nor the last accident of its kind in the garment industry. But the scale was unprecedented. The collapse killed more than a thousand people and injured at least 2,500 more. It was a tragedy, no doubt. But you may be wondering at this point what the Rana Plaza collapse has to do with climate change. Aditi Mayer says the two have everything to do with each other. Our current climate crisis is directly linked to colonization when we think of colonization as a system that's always thinking about extraction, whether we see that through fossil fuels or human labor. Aditi is a sustainable fashion blogger, photojournalist, and labor rights activist based out of Los Angeles, California. Rana Plaza spoke to a system predicated on speed and scale at all costs, even human lives. She was horrified to learn just the day before Rana Plaza collapsed, a crack had opened in a wall of the building. An inspector had said it should be condemned. But there was so much pressure from upper management to have workers complete orders that they were called back into the work the next day. The generators were turned on, and that's when the walls caved in. Rescue teams have been working frantically, uh, looking for people who were trapped inside this building which collapsed on Wednesday. The push for speed and scale at all costs that caused the Rana Plaza disaster is responsible for big headlines. But it's also a source of the persistent warming of our planet. Aditi studies the connections between colonialism, agriculture, labor, and the environmental impact of fast fashion. And she's working to find a more sustainable and ethical way to dress. Welcome to No Denying It. Aditi Mayer spoke with our producer, Rachel Ward. This is a very red carpet question, but can you tell our listeners what you're wearing? Oh, I love this. <laughs> so I am wearing this set. This is made from linen, which is one of my favorite textiles, you can say. I love the look of it. This is not dyed. So it's like a nice, for folks, since we're on a podcast, like a beige color. And then my necklace is from a brand called Aramudi, which I am working with. But their whole thing is kind of looking at motifs of womanhood across time, across cultures, and looking at the elements that were shared between cultures. And they've created these beautiful geometric designs. For me, I think, you know, so much of my relationship with sustainability is cultivating a relationship with the divine feminine. And I know that can sound more woo-woo to some people, but I think to really see nature and its power is to, to see that. And so I'm very much, you know, inclined towards like womanhood, femininity, and matriarchs as like motifs that kind of guide my, my aesthetics, but also what I love in life. <laughs> can you tell me a little bit about where you grew up and how that shaped your thinking around sustainability? 
Yeah, I'm the daughter of immigrants from Punjab, India, the granddaughter of farmers. And so I think growing up with that cultural background and being a first generation immigrant acquainted me in sustainability in ways that I wasn't even aware of until later in life. For one, I was very lucky to grow up in a multi-generational household. So we had our grandfather living with us who even at the age of in his late 80s would go out every day and tend to our backyard, plant seeds and just cultivate the land. And then economically, I think growing up with the low income background, we were already thinking about frugality and extending the life of things we own. So this naturally, you know, led us to buying secondhand, thrifting, reusing what we had, repairing what we had. And I think these are all tenets that align with sustainability, but haven't really been a part of the mainstream understanding of what it looks like. I think so much of the narrative right now is kind of informed by consumption. There is a very specific aesthetic lifestyle that goes along with the environmental movement, um, you know, of those steel straws or tote bags, which is fine and great. But I think it's really powerful to reorient our understandings of this movement with our own identities and our own lineages as well. And you talk about your work as decolonizing fashion. And I'm curious what that means to you, how you sort of define that and how that manifests in like your personal style. To decolonize the fashion industry, in my opinion, is to essentially reorient our relationship with both land and labor, which I say are like the two main pillars of fashion, and we really, really reduce it down. So colonial practice for me is a system predicated on the exploitation and extraction of resources, whether that's the natural environment or human labor, as a means for quote-unquote infinite growth and success often for the West or developed countries. And when we look at the fashion model or the dominant fashion system today, which is fast fashion, you know, a lot of brands and companies are heading to countries that have been historically destabilized by colonial violence and are still reeling from that colonial violence. And the fashion industry is also operating under this idea of the global race to the bottom, which means that brands are looking to produce as much as they can, as fast as they can, as cheap as they can. I think the project of fast fashion was very much rooted in creating this apathy in the consumer of not really caring where our clothes come from, where our clothes go, and the labor behind the label. But when we really see fashion as art, then we'll see, you know, garment workers as artisans, which they all are. I think it's all just a manner of language and framing. Why is it that the folks that are producing t-shirts for, say, the big fast fashion names are often deemed low-skilled labor? Whereas the artisans of these luxury, you know, fashion brands are deemed otherwise. If anyone goes and tries and make a t-shirt, they will really understand the labor and skill required. So that's one thing that needs to change. And the other is often we forget that fashion is a product of agriculture. And this is obviously assuming that we're not talking about synthetic fibers and textiles, which have become the mainstream. I think the figure is upwards of 60% of what you find in the market today is synthetic fabric. So this is polyester, rayon, and acrylics, which are all tied to the fossil fuel industry. But when we remember that fashion is also natural textiles like jute, cotton, linen, hemp, these are all fibers that when planted in their indigenous environments and are farmed in an agricultural regenerative manner can actually sequester carbon and draw down carbon, which is huge. You know, this is a very big tool against climate change. 
And I think, you know, so much of the work of colonialism was seeing land as inert, dead material. It very much severed the ties that so many cultures had with their spirituality, culture, and land. And, you know, we talk a lot about the idea of indigeneity and the indigenous, you know, relationship to their land. This is the idea of biocultural diversity, which basically means that identity, language, culture, and ecological stewardship can't be removed from one another. And so when you're displacing these communities, you're displacing that knowledge and you're displacing two reciprocal regenerative relationships to that land. And so once we do have this cognitive shift, it inevitably will change how we both consume, but how we produce as well. And so in terms of how that affects how I personally dress, you know, decolonizing fashion for me is also going against homogenous trends. I think it's very interesting how we follow arbitrary trends that are fed to us. We go into, say, a Forever 21 and look at what the mannequin is wearing. And for me, you know, thrifting from a very young age as economic necessity very much forced me to like contend with what my personal style was because there was no mannequin to tell me what was in it was just finding my own personal style and then getting a bit older being you know a daughter of the diaspora being an Indian woman I was very much drawn to my own cultural heritage through its clothing as like a proclamation of who I really am um, and so much of the Indian fashion economy historically was rooted in you know, regional artisan practices. There is no one size fits all or one practice. It really depends what region you're from. And I think that's very powerful. So clothing for me is very much a vehicle to unpack identity, systems of power, and ecological stewardship as well. I've heard you use the term fiber shed. Can you talk about what that is? Yes. So a fiber shed is basically this localized economy where There are farmers that are growing fibers and textiles that are indigenous to that region or grow well in that climate. You know, sometimes in sustainability, we talk about what's the most eco-friendly X, Y, Z, which is not the right approach. We need to be asking what is the historical and cultural context of a certain textile? You know, is the climate that you have in this region lend itself to that? Like, for example, cotton is a very water-intensive crop, but there's parts around India that have, you know, rain-fed cotton, and it's it works great. So there'll be the, the farmers that are doing that work, and then there'll be uh, local spinners and weavers and natural dyers. And the natural dyers are often using materials that are plant-based of that region. And so it creates this whole localized economy where, you know, obviously when you think about this from the perspective of carbon emissions, far, far less than these globalized supply chains that go, you know, one place to dye something, one place to sew on an arm sleeve, one place to sell. And so I think fiber sheds are really what the future of fashion need to look like. You know, when we approach things from a fiber shed perspective, there's a lot we can understand from an ecological stewardship perspective of what your landscape is about. One of my favorite fiber sheds, being a little biased, being a South Asian woman, is from a collective called Oshabi Collective. And there's an amazing individual named Nishant Chopra. He's from Tamil Nadu, a state in Southern India. You know, his parents worked in the textile industry. They had a factory. And so he grew up seeing the impacts and the pollutions that these factories were doing in terms of runoff. And so he wanted to reimagine that. So he created 
a localized supply chain where they have a farm that are growing cotton regeneratively. Farmers essentially are given that land to own and brands then lease that land so that money is going directly to the pocket of farmers. Within that same, you know, small radius, there are spinners and people doing block printing and things like that. That's beautiful because not only does it return to our artisan practices, but we're, they're actively prioritizing practices that have been largely lost. And so it's so important that we see these acts as acts of decolonization because that's what they are. They're going against this narrative and history that has really stripped a lot of that, um, which I think is incredibly powerful. So you've said that agriculture and climate and colonialism are all interconnected. Can you Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So it's important to understand the colonial history, but it's even more important to understand how things are recreating themselves in a colonial manner, what we consider neocolonialism. So if we fast forward to like the 80s and 90s, this was a time where a lot of countries were kind of establishing their formal independence from colonialism. And so because they were still reeling from the impacts of colonial violence, they had a lack of infrastructure. Um, And so they were taking loans from the IMF and the World Bank, which led to structural adjustments, which basically means that they were forced to create certain economic zones that like set the conditions for things to take place. One of the first nations to undergo structural adjustments was Bangladesh. There were certain economic zones that were tax-free. It was very, very hard for workers to unionize. There was a lack of environmental regulation. This is what set the conditions for, you know, Rana Plaza to happen and for Bangladesh to be known as a hotbed for sweatshops. That stuff does not happen overnight. And so I guess I just got more curious on how we got here today. Um, And so much of my work began kind of looking at individual action in the beginning. But I think our individual actions can help facilitate the systemic changes we need to see when we're actively thinking about how power exists. So as much as I'm a fan of conscious consumerism and making little changes in our daily routines, I also think it's so important to engage with grassroots organizing, policy work, mutual aid, and direct action, because that's how we build power from the bottom and take it from the top. You're active uh, in this labor campaign in downtown L.A. Can you tell me how you're working on it and what you're hoping to accomplish? Yes. So for the last year or so, um, I have been organizing alongside the amazing cohort of garment worker leaders we have here in L.A. for something called the Garment Worker Protection Act. You know, we have a huge garment industry here in downtown L.A. And workers are largely paid by the piece rate, which means that workers are being paid per piece they make as opposed to the hour. And it's often as low as two to three cents which means that average wage is anywhere between $5 to $6 an hour. Um, So what this uh, Garment Worker Protection Act would do is establish the minimum wage as the wage floor. Next, it would create a direct line of accountability between what happens in a factory and the brands and retailers involved, that there is the legal backing to protect these garment workers. Um, But I think the reason this act is so important is that it frames you know, this relationship to what we as consumers can do. It's not just about being a conscious consumer. It's about being an engaged citizen or community member. The idea of zooming out from the individual consumer choice and getting to some of those other places where folks could exert power, particularly at scale, is really important 
Like we understand intuitively that presidents and prime ministers have a lot of power and CEOs and that as an individual, you can take control of the things in your own household and in your family. But it's that middle, that big middle that we don't know a lot about. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about in the garment industry, like what are the things in that middle that um, could change or places where people who have, you know, a little bit of influence could could amplify it? Yeah, there's so much that can be done in terms of creating a change in this industry. And I think in many movements, we create this stark binary between individual and systemic change. And when I think about the general environmental movement, we vacillate between, you know, getting mad that someone is using a plastic straw to saying, well, it's 100 companies that create 71% of carbon emissions. So is there anything that I do that really matters? And I think that's a very binary way of thinking that we need to like go beyond. And so in terms of everyday things that one can do, depending on who you are and what you do, as consumers, I think there's a lot of power in buying secondhand and just divesting from these, you know, systems or supporting sustainable brands if you have the means to, but also questioning, you know, brands and bringing them to that sense of accountability of how are you treating your workers? How are you embedding ethics and sustainability as a key part of your business model? You know, so we're going beyond the echo chamber. If you work in a company, whatever it may be, fashion or beyond, ask that question as well internally. How are we prioritizing this? Uh, what does our corporate social responsibility, you know, parameters look like? How are we empowering employees throughout the supply chain, not just in the corporate headquarters, but also folks that are making this stuff? And then when it comes to policy work, there are a lot of amazing organizations that are doing that work that anyone can support. There is an organization called Remake Our World, uh, which is all about holding the fashion industry to account and definitely focuses on garment workers around the world, specifically women and women of color. There is Fashion Revolution, which is really focuses on, you know, individual and consumer action to create systemic change. So, you know, the mechanisms are out there. It's just a matter of getting comfortable with being uncomfortable and making others uncomfortable um, because even the word sustainability is really about sustaining, but we know our current systems are not serving us. So I really think we need to engage in the work of reimagination. Yeah. If we're talking about individual folks who might not yet be connected to a community that is acting in this space, how would you... What are some of the most important steps do you think people could take in order to um, address climate through this like mode of fashion? Mm. I would say the first thing is consuming less. <laughs> it's not the answer anyone wants to hear. <laughs> it's always like, what do I buy? But consume less. Consume secondhand as much as you can. Support small local brands that are prioritizing ethical fashion, sustainable fashion, which means interrogate what their materials are, how they treat people on the supply chain. And I think those questions are, you know, fashion is a great place to start. Our closet is both a manifestation of our personal styles and identities, but also larger systems of oppression. Does that mean the onus to fix the fashion industry is on you as an individual? No. But it's a great way to start to understand those. So that would be the, you know, the steps that I would share to anyone. And I think buying secondhand is always that go-to message, but it transcends fashion. 
Um, there's so much in our lives that we can do secondhand. And secondhand doesn't just mean going out to a thrift store or anything. It's also in your own family or community circle. It's reusing what you own, upcycling it, downcycling it. If you have a t-shirt you don't want to use anymore, turn it into rags. If you want to exercise your creativity, try sewing. Um, try dyeing it with avocado pits and other food waste that you have. There's so many creative ways to start, but I think it's really important not to put all of the onus on the individual to feel like they need to fix these systems, but see what is in their sphere of access so they could think locally and think globally at the same time. The way we treat our planet and the way workers are treated are intimately connected. And when we're oblivious to the needs of one, it's no surprise that we'd be insensitive to the needs of the other. As individuals, we can't reform entire systems where global powers create incentives for industry to put profits over people and planet. But we can be more conscious of that system and mobilize with campaigns to reform it. The Fashion Industry Charter for Climate Action sets out targets for its signatories. They're committing to decarbonizing the industry by switching to low-carbon materials, ending the use of coal-fired boilers, and moving to renewable energy. And until we can force a change, we can think carefully about how we engage with fashion. We can avoid synthetic fibers that are made from fossil fuels. We can choose to buy used or swap when we want to give our wardrobes a makeover. Business owners can build a business plan that takes into account the talent and the skill of garment workers and pay them accordingly. Purchasers for organization can use their buying power to choose more local or sustainable options for uniforms and linens. And as individuals, we can find ways to express our personal style that don't rely on consumption. Our clothing is a billboard for our personalities but we can also broadcast our values and kick off conversations about how to create a better condition for workers and healthier practices for our planet. There's no denying it. No Denying It, the UN Climate Action Podcast is produced by UN News and Good To Do Today. Our producer at UN News is Connor Lennon and Natalie Hutchison is our promo and distribution manager. Our producers at Good To Do Today are Emma Jacobs, Jay Venables, and Rachel Ward. Our managing producer at UN News is Matthew Wells, and our executive producer is Mita Hosali. Braden Alexander is our audio engineer, and our theme song is by Memory Palace, courtesy of Marmoset. Additional music from Artlist. This episode features archival audio from the BBC and UN News's Jocelyn Sambira. Many, many thanks to Carlos Islam, Mayan Mojado, Paula Bustamante, Fang Chen, Martina Donlan, Bartishta Jane, Robert Nashovsky, Regina Merkova, June Park, Ezra Sergi, Sam Tracy, Matilda Fellino, freesound.org, and the UN Environment Program. You can find more stories about climate action from UN News at news.un.org. <laughs>